From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, Freddie Gray, Anthony Hill. The list of officer-involved deaths is long, and the death of a Tatiana Jefferson, killed when a Fort Worth police officer fired into her bedroom window, has revived questions about training law enforcement and consequences. Here in Georgia, former DeKalb County police officer Robert Olson is set to be sentenced on November 1st. He's been cleared of murder charges in the death of Anthony Hill, but convicted of four other charges. Well, the incidents keep on happening, and today we're exploring some of the efforts to stop that trend. Cedric Alexander was DeKalb County Director of Public Safety when Hill was killed there. He's now a consultant and leading advocate for police reform. Cedric, welcome. Thank you for having me. In the studio with me is Chris Stewart, a civil rights attorney who's represented several families of black men shot and killed by police. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Of course. Okay, Chris, revisiting the case quickly, DeKalb County Police Officer Robert Olson shot and killed Anthony Hill. This was 2015. Hill was a former airman who was having a mental health crisis at the time, and he was naked uh, at the time of his shooting. Olson was recently acquitted of murder in the case, but convicted on four lesser charges for which he could be sentenced to prison. So you're a lawyer. He's convicted of aggravated assault, violation of oath of office, and making false statements. What does that mean for Olson? Well, he can face up to, I believe, about 35 years. Um, he was found guilty for shooting um, the young man and then also for uh I think lying later in his police report um, and then also for violating the use of force policy by the department. So it's it's really a you know very locked down case for the civil suit that's going. Um, but he can still face extreme time. Like I what? Mean, what? What? Uh, come November first, he could have got thirty-five years. Yeah, so it can actually get the same time as if he would have been found guilty of the murder. felony murder charge, yeah. which he was. Uh, he was he two counts of felony murder charges there. Cedric, you have a doctoral degree in psychology. Now, what were you thinking back in twenty fifteen when you found out a DeKalb County officer had shot and killed a man with mental health issues and definitely needs? Now, you may recollect during that time, I was also on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And our main primary, primary focus uh, in the charge we were given by President Obama at that time was to find ways in which we could build better relationships between police and community. And one thing that came out as a result of our findings uh, being on that task force is that it's, that it's important and you'll see that in Georgia today, that any time you have an officer-involved shooting involved in death, is that you take that investigation from yourself and give it to an outside entity, i.e. Georgia Bureau Investigation, in this case, which removes you from it so that the public uh, will feel that a fair and impartial investigation is taking place. Well, Chris, one of the recommendations from the task force on 21st century policing is, and some municipalities have insisted on this, that police be equipped with body cameras. How has that changed the perspectives? People have to understand it's all in the details. I've reviewed countless police department policies, and they don't have rules on when you activate it, when you can turn it off. Do you have to actually keep looking at the scene? Some officers will turn away knowing that their body cam is on. So there are there's loopholes constantly, especially the use of force policies. There aren't rules all the time. They're written by lawyers and it's very vague. I had a 
the case with Walter Scott. Body cams were instituted after that. Right. When we demanded it from the governor. And then it happened with Gregory Towns, who I represented that was killed down here. East Point didn't have a taser policy. And he was tasered to death about 20 times. So there's a policy, but what are the details? Right. And of course, that is a part of what Cedric is wanting to do. Training police differently. Community yes. policing, obviously, is a, has been a big move. Cedric Alexander, consultant and advocate for police reform, former president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Chris Stewart is also with us, a civil rights attorney with Robert Olson's sentencing set for November 1st. We're talking about efforts to uh, curb police-involved deaths. And Chris, the question, of course, the difficult question of why this keeps happening. So it's a white officer killing uh, a black person. Is this racism? I was asked that with Walter Scott when I took that case and you it was killed in South Carolina that was the first question that I was asked at a press conference and my answer then was well I don't know Michael Slager so I can't comment on that we hadn't researched him we didn't know anything that had just happened so you know that's impossible to say unless you know that officer you know that officer's mindset but what we do know is this constantly happens to African-Americans particularly in the inner city and that's a problem Um, but that is a myriad of problems those communities are over-policed in some situations. They have the wrong officers working in those areas. Temperament checks has to be something that is vital when you're policing, especially in inner city areas. Um, and especially there are implicit biases. There are situations where officers will fire quicker because the person is a person of color. Um, and it is an implicit bias situation, which is why some departments do have implicit bias training. Um, but a lot of them don't. Cedric, you recently wrote an opinion piece when you questioned the mental health of police recruits themselves. Who is coming to get these jobs? The op-ed also touched on training, crisis intervention training, or CIT, now required part of DeKalb County Police Academy. Olson had gone through it, but he still reacted quickly and with deadly force. Is that a sign that the training failed? Let's take it to a much broader perspective than that. Three things I wrote in the most recent uh, CNN op-ed as it relates to the Antiana uh, Jefferson case in Fort Worth. And three things I've pointed out in that op-ed is that police is going to have to recruit better. Who are we recruiting to become police officers? I need to know more than just their credit check, their driving record, their criminal behavior, if there's any. I need to know more of that person as to what are their exits, ethics, and their morals. How do they view diversity and those kinds of issues that are more salient to a very diverse world we live in today? That's number one. And we're not recruiting cowboys and cowgirls. We're recruiting guardians of a community. We're going to train them to protect themselves because it is a dangerous world out there. And that's in many communities. It's not just relegated to communities of color. Secondly, once we recruit, how do we train? We got to go beyond the shoot, don't shoot scenarios. We got to train far greater than what we have. And retraining not just in the academy, but post-academy training. Do officers get enough training around de-escalation? And do they get more training around implicit bias? See, those words, see, see those classes, well, everybody say, well, we've done de-escalation training. We run in implicit bias training. That means nothing if it's not being reinforced by leadership 
from the top of the organization down to their first line supervisor. So if I have a man or woman officer, male or female, that goes through the escalation training, goes to implicit bias training, when I'm working with them as their boss, I want to see them apply those tools when they can apply them. In some cases will be appropriate and in others it may not be, but it has to be reinforced. Right. That's what I'm hearing from, from Chris here, that the idea that, Absolutely. yes, there are ways of doing things, but they're not necessarily supervised. So, but, Chris, this is, goes to another point here, that it seems a lot of departments across Georgia and the nation are facing difficulties attracting and hiring police officers. So there are vacancies, there's low pay in, in police yeah. departments affecting the quality of people getting hired, never mind getting this extra training. How does that play out? I fully agree with what Cedric said. I've been preaching that if you want police brutality in those three things, how are police officers not one of the highest paid professions in this country when they, they're the only people that can take life, put you in jail for life and protect you all at once. I mean, it's insanity that the standards to become an officer aren't just like becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, whatever it may be, and that they aren't paid to that degree in America, the better pay, the higher quality you're going to get. I mean, that's just a fact, but it's purposely done where most police officers make less than teachers or less than a sanitation worker in some cities. It's insanity. Secondly, most of these officers are allowed to bounce around. So when I get a case, first thing we look up is his background. He's worked at four different departments. Mm-hmm. Move from place to place. Because they can resign before they get fired or they can just bounce around. So, of course, if someone is bouncing around, they're problematic. But because departments need officers, they need bodies. So they overlook it. And then the guy kills someone. Or he has a myriad of problems with internal affairs. So you found that there are records for these Constantly, these, okay. every single situation. Or he has constant complaints about, oh, he punched me or this officer kicked me or whatever. And I've sat down with chiefs and I've told them, if you have an officer that is pushing the line a little bit, punching someone un- unnecessarily, going a little bit too far, they're going to end up killing someone. So you've got to fire them or stop them now. Oh, well, we need bodies. We've got to keep our officers. But it's going to just keep happening. What are families asking for when it comes to finding justice for their loved ones? Of course, they're looking for an arrest, you know, because a loved one has been taken. Um, And they're looking for change. One of the biggest things that we always try and do is not just settle the civil case, but to make sure there was change. In Alton Sterling, another super viral shooting in Baton Rouge, we finally got a use of force policy instituted. They didn't have one before. So we try and find a a way to create change in each situation so that there isn't another uh, Alton Sterling or Walter Scott. Well, Cedric, what do you think? I mean, I know it's a big question, something you've been spending a lot of time on years uh, working with reforming police departments. But what do you think is the best sort of move forward to change the way that that relationship between law enforcement and citizens can reach some stability? You know, one of the biggest challenges in this country when it comes to police and community, these issues we're talking about are not new. They've been around since the inception of policing. It's just that during Michael Brown in 2014, it was kind of a, a 21st century tipping point, if you will, of bringing all this to light and all everything that happened and came behind it. And But you have 18,000 police departments in this country. 18,000. 
And all that those 18,000, sometimes it's being done 18,000 different ways. Mm-hmm. There are some standards that are the same uh, based on post-training. But here again, the officers may get good training in the academy, but the challenge becomes how are they being supervised and mentored from that point on? But you have some great chiefs out there that are doing some magnificent things. Uh, the attorney talked about the case back in East Point. And I was there when they had that tasing incident, which was horrible. But you have new leadership there. You have a new uh, uh, chief there. And uh, departments like East Point and Douglasville, I myself over the last several months, I've been inside both sides of, of both of those departments doing leadership and implicit, explicit bias training. Leadership in those agencies play a key role, not just in terms of talking about it, but actually exercising it and practicing it and doing it every day where it becomes a part of that culture of that organization. Cedric Alexander, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me today. That is former DeKalb County Police Chief and Public Safety Director Cedric Alexander, now a consultant who advocates for police reform. And Chris Stewart, who's represented families of many black men killed by police officers. Thank you, Chris, for being with us. My pleasure. Stay with us. GBB Politics reporter Stephen Fowler got a rare sit-down interview with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. You'll hear what he had to say when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It's been about 10 months since Governor Brian Kemp took office with a pledge to lift up rural Georgia. But after visiting all 159 counties, I can tell you this. We have so much in common. And as governor, I will fight for all Georgians, not just the ones that voted for me. Now he's launched a rural strike team designed to boost economic development across the state and has embarked on a Georgia-made tour to highlight local companies and their successes. Governor Kemp made one of those stops in southeast Georgia earlier this week for a ribbon cutting at a chicken processing facility. He told GPB reporter Stephen Fowler that one of his top priorities is telling rural Georgia's story. Well, one of the things that we felt like for a long time is we weren't promoting um, the rest of the state, if you will. There's just so many great things going on outside of our metro areas, and not just only Atlanta, but you think, you know, Augusta proper, Savannah, a lot of focus with the ports, Gulfstream, tourism, a lot of other great things going on there. But we don't really talk about, like, this great project that we celebrated today here at Claxton Poultry. We're sitting in the cafeteria of Claxton Poultry's new facility in Sylvania, midway between Augusta and Savannah, about three and a half hours outside of Atlanta. Earlier in the afternoon, the governor and First Lady Marty Kemp toured the frigid chicken deboning facility as part of his Georgia-made tour. Michael Fries is president of Claxton Poultry, whose main operation is a couple counties over. This facility opened up in June with 75 employees on one shift, and now... But uh, proud to say now we have 187 full-time employees here. That's two processing shifts. That type of growth is emblematic of the places Kemp is stopping at while crisscrossing the state on his tour. But we're a big state, and we have great Georgia-made companies and Georgia-made products in all parts of our state. And that's really what we're trying to highlight. 
In his remarks to a crowd of a hundred or so gathered, the governor said the business world is constantly looking for development and rural Georgia is the place to watch. Uh, and it's my job as the top salesperson, if you will, uh, to be promoting our state in this area and facilities just like this to supply the world. And we can do it, and we have done it, and we're going to continue to do it. Later, Kemp elaborates on this idea of governor as salesman. After joking about the amount of Chick-fil-A his family eats as evidence, he says he truly does believe in all of the different Georgia industries he promotes. You know, we're making a lot of great Georgia-made products. Um, we're feeding the world. We're, you know, supplying manufacturers. We're supplying cars, you know, aerospace. I mean, technology, you name it, we're doing it in the state, biopharmaceuticals. And we just need to highlight that more because it's, it's not only important for our citizens to know that, it's important for the rest of the country and the world to know that as we continue to compete with others. That can be difficult for a region that has seen population decline, increases in poverty and unemployment levels, and industries that have taken a hit through natural disasters or trade uncertainty. We, we focus on the negative things that have been happening in rural Georgia. It's a tough farm economy right now, but rural Georgia helped us get through the recession in our state because the ag economy was so good. So it's in a, it's in a tough cycle right now, uh, but we got to continue to focus to promote the good things that are happening in rural Georgia and focus on the positive and things that we can change to make it better. Kemp says promoting the good things, no matter how small, can have a ripple effect for places that are more than a stone's throw away from a major city. And I know you know how hard it is for those things to succeed but also know how great it is for those local communities when they can land one even if it's just 10 jobs or or 20 jobs that's a big deal for a small town so we got to focus on the positive things but there are also tangible steps the governor wants to take to move from talking about rural georgia to doing something the legislature has passed some relief, like a plan allowing electric membership cooperatives to sell Internet access. But other infrastructure issues have stalled or require more work and capital from public and private partners. Enter the Rural Strike Team, something Kemp says will work to recruit companies to build mega job sites in places like the facility in Sylvania. So that we can really have projects of regional significance, see what the infrastructure needs are, figure out if there's something lacking, how do we get that there, have the resources of the state to help market the site, and also train the, train the local people to be able to, to help us on the ground, be able to market and continue to move our state forward. The Claxton Poultry Facility provides almost 200 jobs to Screven County, where the median household income is about $37,000 and has one of the higher unemployment rates in the state. It took time and money to create those jobs, and the governor says the same principles will apply to jobs created by the state. What is everybody doing? Why are they doing it? Where is it headed? And then is it covering all the gaps that we have in rural Georgia, like broadband, like you know, roads, like bridges, like you know, rail spurs, whatever the need may be? But we got to have a targeted approach to that. You know, it's, it's very expensive to do these things. You can't do them in one year. And that's really where our approach is going to be targeted to the communities that want to uh, help us in that regard and, and come together and work with us and be part of that team. And, we, you know, we're, we're off to a great start. So if it will take time and money to build industry in rural Georgia, why is Kemp asking for budget cuts? 
In August, the governor asked state agencies to expect 4% less money for the rest of this fiscal year and submit proposals to cut 6% from their budgets in next fiscal year, including agencies and programs directed towards rural parts of the state. I come from kind of a unique background being governor. I served in an executive branch agency during the recession. You know, we had to cut our budget around 20% at one time, and it was brutal. We were, you know, you know, they always take a, a surgical knife, which is kind of what we're doing now. But, I mean, we were, we were literally taking the chainsaws in, you know, back then and just whacking things off, which is not ideal. That's why I feel like while the economy's good, um, and we have great priorities in our state, but to fund those priorities in the future, we cannot continue to spend at the level we're spending. Some departments say the only way they can do that is by slashing jobs and by stretching resources to be able to provide services Georgians need. But that's not what Kemp wants this process to be. And that's what we're trying to get the agencies to do, not just go lay off a bunch of people, uh, but to really change their spending habits and how they look at technology and making government more efficient. That's what I had to do in my private sector business. That's what our families are having to do. And that will then allow us to prioritize uh, what we want to pay for in state government, like the infrastructure you mentioned, you know, the teacher pay raises. I mean, rural communities are losing 44% of their teachers within the first five years. Well, if we don't have good teachers, we're not going to have an educated workforce, and it makes it very difficult for uh, companies like Claxton Poultry to hire the people that they need, really at all levels of the organization when you go through and, you know, see some of the technology that's in those plants when you think about having to maintain those or run those machines. He says it's supposed to be an exercise in cutting out wasteful spending and better using technology to get the state's work done. You know, I, I would tell people it's not just cutting spending. We're trying to make government more efficient so we can fund our priorities. So if, if any department, whether it's ag or anybody else, can cut spending and be more efficient, then we can use that money to fund our priorities, like I talked about earlier, infrastructure, you know, fund you know, this work that we're going to be doing on the rural strike team. It's, it's all about funding your priorities. It's not about just, you know, cutting government money. I mean, we want government to be more efficient. That's what I ran on. I told people that I would do that. And, uh, you know, our, our budget numbers, we've had an incredible economy the last six or seven years. You know, those revenues are unprecedented, and we've been spending to those levels as well. Well, if they slow down, then we got two choices. We can deficit spend, which we can't do in Georgia because we have a balanced budget amendment, or we can make government more efficient so we can continue to fund our priorities like the teacher pay raises, like you know economic development, like keeping your family safe by going after street gangs and, uh, and focusing on rural Georgia, and that's what we're going to do. Another area that needs help is rural health care. This year, lawmakers passed the Patients First Act that is allowing the state to seek exemptions from the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid to give health care coverage to more Georgians. Obviously, the waivers, that was my signature piece of legislation, the Patients First Act, and we're working right now with the administration in Washington to get waivers to the Affordable Care Act and to the Medicaid program uh, so that we can lower private sector insurance rates on the, on the Affordable Care Act side of things because it's simply unaffordable and Georgians know that and there's some things that we can do there and we're very excited about that. Also make health care more accessible so that people have access to it no matter what their zip code is. On the Medicaid side it's just a you know inefficient program. We've left private sector ingenuity 
at times, and we've got to modernize it, make it more efficient, and get a better bang for our buck. So that's kind of what we're doing on the waiver side. But we pass bills on transparency, on telemedicine, which will help people in rural Georgia. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that we're, that we're working through since the bill passed now. Uh, also, we put a lot of money in the budget, you know, talking about funding our priorities to get more doctors in rural Georgia. That's one of the biggest issues that we have. We just do not have enough health care providers and doctors in rural parts of our state. Kemp cites programs at Mercer University, the Morehouse School of Medicine, and the University of Georgia as examples of ways the state can bridge the health care gap, but the Morehouse program dealing with maternal health care stands to lose half a million dollars in state funding under the cuts. While Governor Kemp is working on the state budget and health care and making these Georgia-made tour stops, Washington is on his mind as well. Senator Johnny Isaacson will resign from office at the end of 2019 due to health concerns, and Kemp will have to appoint his replacement. That replacement will appear on the ballot next year in a special election with huge implications for the next several years in national politics. Well, it's, a, it's an opportunity I wish I didn't have. You know, Senator Isaacson's a great American, a great Georgian. I've known him and his family a very long time. He served with uh, my wife Marty's father in, in the State House way back in the mid-70s and up through the early part of the 80s, I believe it was. You know, we gotta, we got to send somebody to Washington, D.C. that's going to fight for all Georgians. And that's really my number one priority is getting someone that can go up there and fight hard for us. It's a really tough environment in Washington, D.C. These, these days it's a lot different, I think, than it's ever been in some ways. And we got to have a fighter that's going to really fight hard for our state every day. And that's probably my, you know, my biggest priority right now, making sure that I'm picking somebody that will do that, but also somebody that meets the qualifications to serve our state for years to come. He's not searching completely in the dark. There's an application process where interested parties can submit their resumes. More than 500 people have done so, including several prominent political and business leaders. Kemp says the application is another commitment to making sure Georgians trust their government. Well, I think the good thing about it is we're having a transparent process. You know, people complain about government not being transparent. People, you know, picking somebody in, you know, deal-cutting, smoke-filled rooms. And we're not trying to do that. We're trying to let people know who's interested. We're trying to gauge who's interested. I mean, there was a couple of people just in the last couple of weeks that applied that are, you know, non-political but very accomplished business people. I think there's a, a case you could make for sending a good business person up there and someone that hasn't been involved in politics for a long time. Of course, you can make the case that somebody that knows about the process would be a, be a good pick, too. So we're considering all those and, and um, doing a lot of due diligence. You know, we want to pick someone that can withhold the scrutiny that's going to come with probably one of the most polarized and really, you know, dig down deep elections that we've ever seen uh, just because of us having two U.S. Senate races here in the state of Georgia. He would know he won his election by just 55,000 votes. But another polarizing issue the governor wants to tackle is the relationship between Atlanta and not Atlanta. Yeah, well, I think when you think about the issues that I've been pushing, you know, even at the most polarizing part of the campaign, you know, when you have a lot of people spending money against you, no matter which candidate it is, your, your negatives are going to go up. You know, you have opportunity when you get in office to govern 
and the issues that I'm governing on are the same ones that I told people when I campaigned, and they're all t kitchen table issues. You know, people get sidetracked on all this other stuff, but when you talk about teacher pay raises, when you talk about, you know, the Patients First Act and, and us taking the lead on health care, people are so frustrated with health care, they know that they can't continue to pay, you know, $1,200, dollars $2,000 a month for a family health care plan and have a $5,000 deductible. So we're doing something about that. People know that we have a gang crisis in our state, no matter where you live. If you just open your eyes, you can read about it every single day. It's contributing to the opioid epidemic. It's contributing to sex trafficking and other things that um, my wife, Marty, is also focused on. And we're doing those things. We're moving the needle. So I think, you know, that is bridging a divide between Atlanta and, and rural Georgia, and certainly, you know, economic development does as well. We've had great projects in the, the metro region that are covered by the Atlanta media that, you know, have people going, well, God, this guy really is a business guy. He's working hard on economic development. You know, he's going to keep Georgia moving in the right direction. We've been named the number one state in the country for business. That's why you'll see him in places like Lula, Monroe, Patterson, and Sylvania. The people right here at Claxton Poultry and in Scriven County, in Sylvania, Georgia, they, they know that they have a governor that's, you know, while they may not see me every day in rural Georgia, they've seen me a lot, but they know that every day that I'm in our state or in Washington, D.C., or on an economic development mission in South Korea or wherever it is I'm going, that I'm fighting hard for all parts of our state. That's not to say that people in metro Atlanta will take a back seat to rural Georgia while Kemp is governor. And, and I, I personally think that people in Atlanta want rural Georgia to succeed. They know a lot, a lot of people grew up in rural Georgia, moved to Atlanta, and end up staying there. So they, they, don't, they don't want rural Georgia to waste away. They know that's not good for our state. I mean, our port's been growing because of our great ag economy. We don't need to lose that in our state. But we can't just survive in rural Georgia on ag alone. We've got to have a diversified economy so you can weather situations that we're in like right now where the commodity market's down or we're dealing with a, you know, a trade issue. GPB Stephen Fowler there interviewing Governor Brian Kemp in Sylvania, Georgia. It's about three hours southeast of Atlanta. You can hear the full interview on our website, gpbnews.org. What do you think rural Georgia needs most? You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. Email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message. We're at 404-500-9457. Coming up, you may know Deneen Milner as one of the hosts of A Seat at the Table on GPB. Well, she's now host of a new podcast. We'll hear more when On Second Thought returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. New York Times bestselling author Deneen Milner says she created her website MyBrownBaby.com in 2008 to connect with African-American parents in America. More than a decade later, she's widening connections with her new podcast, Speakeasy with Deneen. On this show, we dig deep into the beauty of blackness and all of its manifestations. Here's how it goes. We take one word like black, beauty, love 
and we break down the many ways that word applies to the African-American experience. Speakeasy with Deneen launches tomorrow on GPB and all of your favorite podcast purveyors. We should note Deneen is also co-host of A Seat at the Table on GPB TV. So we're getting the inside track tease here with Deneen on the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank and you for having me. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited about this one. Well, there have been lots of milestones for you in this last year, right? You, you, you're you now a member of the 50 Club. Yes. You worked on the Fresh Princess series with yes. Will Smith, we talked about. Seat at the Table nominated for a slew of Emmys. Yes. And you thought, okay, now I'm going to start a podcast. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, you know, I, I just found that when I entered the 50s Club, that um, you know, when I was younger, I thought 50 was old. You get in your rocking chair and you wait for the grandbabies and life is over. And now that I'm here, there's so many more things that I want to do. And I actually have the brain capacity, uh, the wisdom to get it done and the energy to um, to think about what it is that I really want in my life and to pursue that with passion and joy. And that's something that I didn't do in my 20s and 30s because I was mostly scared yeah. or worried about what other people would think. And now I really just don't give a doggone at all. <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> well, that title, Speakeasy, this is a name given to secret establishments during Prohibition. You know, you'd do the special knock, and if you knew the code word, you'd get access. Is there a code word for Speakeasy with Denise? Uh, yes, absolutely. So every episode has its own code word, right? And it changes like in a good speakeasy. It changes and you have to kind of figure out what it's going to be. Well, you don't have to figure out what ours are, but we do have a different code word. Um, and each word sort of uh, delves into how that word manifests. And, you know, just like we said earlier in the um, in the preview of the show, uh, what we'll be talking about in that episode and how it sort of flows through the African-American community. So every episode focuses on a theme. Your code word could be black, could be beauty, could be flower. Here's a clip with one code word, fly. Here's author and entertainment writer Demetria Lucas explaining what fly means to her. The first thing I thought was like fly is in dope. Like, very 80s fly, like, feathered hair, asymmetric bamboo earrings. Like, I felt like fly like that. And then I also thought, you know, fly as in soar, and then fly as in travel via flight. So there are many, you explore multiple meanings of fly. Absolutely. Right? And being free, being fierce, being fearless, right. including traveling internationally, which for you, what you did with your daughters for the first time without a partner. Oh, now, my goodness, yes. What and was behind that flight? Well, um, you know, what was brilliant about it was that the producer of the show, Sean Powers, who is just like my ace, um, told me to take my tape recorder and just record myself as I was traveling to Spain. And my fear is that, you know, like when I travel internationally for the first time without a man, that, you know, it's just scary. There's you know, new places, there's a completely different language. Right. How would I survive that? And so it was just scary. And so I... I taped it, and then we turned it into a podcast episode. Well, because we are radio, we're going to play a little bit of that. <laughs> this is what the, your voice memo narration from, from the episode Fly. I'm just realizing that the last time that I was in Madrid was on my honeymoon. Isn't that a trip? Well, we're here, and there are signs written in English, so I don't feel like that much of a, sh of a uh, fish out of water. But uh, this is just the beginning. Whew. 
That's such an interesting, you know, you don't have to be perfect when you're doing your own little voice memo. So there's a right. risk there for someone who's been a journalist, you know, always trying to get things right. You know, on television, right. you have to you, you have to be conscious of that. It was really, you know, like it was a vulnerable moment that I didn't, when I listened back to it, I was like, whoa, I was really scared. Yeah. And my kids were making fun of me the entire time. So you'll hear my kids just like, what's the problem? Why are you tripping? Why, get over it. We're just going to catch the plane and we're just going to catch a train and who cares if daddy's not here mm-hmm. we're going to do it and it's just like they gave me sort of the power the wings to fly which is what you'll hear um, in that episode what fly means outside it like it's blackness right because we're talking about traveling as a black woman in the world but it's also deeply human mm-hmm. you know like who can't identify with being afraid of a new experience and sort of diving into it anyway and hoping that you come out on the other side. Well, this also illuminates, you know, you speak easy with Deneen. It uses these personal conversations Mm -hmm. and stories to illuminate much bigger ideas and trends. And we're looking at, you know, a time when a Travel Weekly report spending by African-American travelers increased 48 billion to 63 billion since 2011. Mm -hmm. See, now we see these hashtags like Black Girls Travel Too and Traveling While Black. So what what do you think is behind this trend and its larger meaning? I think that people, well, what we're, black people always traveled, right? Like my mom was a huge traveler. She traveled to Hawaii. She traveled to Brazil. She went to all these different places. My brother did too, but they were doing it at a time when you couldn't see it on social media. You couldn't go and take a pretty picture with your iPhone and then share it with everybody. And so Black people and travel is not new, but being able to experience it through their eyes is new. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the beauty of Speakeasy is understanding that it's not new and that you're learning something about us that existed for quite some time. And when I say blackness isn't just about race, that's what I mean. Like, I'm inviting you into a world that may not necessarily get covered on the Today Show or in a newspaper or in a magazine, but that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. And so I'm I'm sort of peeling back those layers and allowing you to see what really is the truth about us. But you do let us in on your life. And as I mentioned, you you started out as a journalist with this discipline of removing the self. You dive in pretty deep and and into personal topics on the podcast. Mm Was there any hesitation for you about doing that as a journalist? No, not at <laughs> You're all. Like I'm over fifty. I'm all my dog on business, and I have for a billion years. You know, when I was at the Daily News, I was a political journalist first, and then became an entertainment journalist. And even as a political journalist, they would make me do first-person stories. So you would see me like um, being lifted up into the air by Shaq or trying out for um, the Nick City Dancers even though I can't dance, (laughs) like (laughs) trying out for, you know, like a hosting job on MTV. Like I've always been an open book because I find that when you when you share your life with people, they they learn a little bit bit of something and they also see themselves. And so I've just never held back. And the blog was really, um, you know, a full on, you know, full court press into my life. Mm-hmm. I write, write a lot about my kids. I write a lot about being a mother. I write a lot about being a woman. And it's all deeply personal. And so it was a natural progression to do it on the podcast. But doing it uh, with audio is different. It's voices, oh, you know. Most, that's... Def- most definitely. And easier. Can yeah. I just say? <laughs> no makeup. <laughs> I don't have to like. This is the key to my life. <laughs> 
don't have to transcribe anything, figure out how the words should flow. I don't have to sit up until two o'clock in the morning writing, you know, 20 paragraphs. Yeah. I get to say what needs to be said and be out and Sean makes, turns it into magic. It's awesome. <laughs> Big shout out to Sean Powers, who yes. is a colleague here and, and a real engine here at GPP mm-hmm. and of course of our podcasting unit. Yes. Well, this a lot of this comes through. You know, your personal self comes through in an episode about love. You sit down and chat with your girlfriend about dating after being married for 20 years and that marriage ended. A lot has changed in dating since that time. (laughs) So so were you as fearless about that as you were about finally getting on that plane and bringing your daughters across the sea? I think so. But I think, you know, coming dating for the first time, I was with my ex for 24 years, right? We were married for 22 and dated for two years before that. And that's a long time to be with someone. That was almost half of my life Mm -hmm. on this planet. And coming out on the other side of that was like looking at dating from a time capsule. You know, the last time I dated, I was 27 years old. And so there was no social media. You know, instead, there were no DMs for people to creep into. You know, um, there was just no uh, way for you to get to know someone other than to sit down and actually talk to them. You couldn't yeah. do sort of the investiga- investigative work that you can do on the internet Google now. Google Right, exactly. And so, um, you know, that's been different. And and being a black woman in Atlanta where um, the statistics aren't necessarily in our favor, there's way more black women available than black men or way more men uh I mean, women in general available than uh, uh, men. And so that makes it interesting. Yeah. Like, how do you fight that feeling of, you know, if you look at dating as a marketplace, which on some level it mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, this idea that it's a zero sum game, you know, that I'm in competition with all of these right, other people. Right. And so, you know, like the I've really so I've been dating for two years now um, and I really, really enjoy not necessarily the act of dating, that's fine, but getting to know myself, right? And how um, how I've grown uh, and what it is that I expect and what I'm looking for and how strong I actually am. I'm way stronger than I thought I was. Um, and my voice is a lot more powerful personally um, when I'm dealing with the opposite sex or, you know, like people that I might be interested in romantically. I've just found that um, it's been an amazing journey to get to know me and to see how I respond in those situations. And so it hasn't been, um, you know, a hard road to 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 hoe for me. Um, I've had a lot of fun, you know, dating. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, we are getting to know Deneen Milner. And, and you definitely will in the podcast. She's host of GPB's newest podcast, Speakeasy with Deneen. She's also one of three hosts of GPB's A Seat at the Table. That show is now in its third season. So uh, a great run here. I want to talk about that episode, Love, mm-hmm. when you speak with the best-selling author, Tayari Jones from Atlanta, multiple award-winning Oprah Book Club novel, An American yes. Marriage. This follows the erosion, really, of a marriage after a man is wrongly accused of rape. Let's hear just a clip from that. What is asked of them is superhuman. They, For their love to sustain, they were only married 18 months, right. and he's given a 12-year sentence. And for that romantic relationship to survive would require them to be superheroes. 
Tayari Jones there from the new Speakeasy with Deneen podcast. Deneen is my guest today. So you highlight and emphasize this idea of black love. How Mm -hmm. do you define that? Mm -hmm. Oh, goodness. Black love is like any other kind of love. It's about heart. It's about soul. It's about pouring your energy, um, your attention into things that matter, things that bring you joy, passion. Love isn't just about, black love isn't just about romantic love. It's about loving your children. It's about loving your friends. It's about loving your life. It's about loving your culture. It's about loving the things that make you wake up in the morning and put your feet on the on the ground and put your hands in the air and say, thank God for another day. Um, you know, I was surrounded, I grew up surrounded by black love in a two-parent household with two black folks, from, from one from South Carolina, one from Virginia, who just loved strong and hard. And they taught me how to do that. Um, and I've done that with abandon. And so I wanted to explore that, but look at it in all of its different manifestations. And one of them is what does black love look like in the, in the face of uh, racial injustice. It's something that we talk about constantly, um, racial injustice. But I wanted to talk about wh- how does that show up in a family? How does that show up in the middle of black love? Like, can black love sustain that kind of trauma? And Tayari's book, uh, you know, An American Marriage is the perfect um, gateway to to have that discussion. She has that discussion in that book, and she was just phenomenal. She came in and she just, you know, completely rocked it. It was a beautiful discussion. Mm. Well, so you talked about peeling back the layers we don't see on the Today Show and in a way that is human. Is there a consciousness at all about talking about the black experience in a way that feels inclusive to all listeners? I mean, is is this like we're telling you, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Revealing, you know, it it I invite people to listen, right? But this conversation is so about validation for black folks who know that we are here, we're alive, we have lives, we have passion, we have joy, and it deserves an airing. And so this is for them, and I invite everybody else to engage and listen, right? Listen in. I'm not, when when you listen to Speakeasy with Deneen, I'm not going to explain blackness to you. Blackness just is. And you will understand it. And if you don't, Google exists for a reason. <laughs> Go look it up. Or you can hit me at speakeasywithdeneen.com and I will answer whatever question that it is that you have. But understand that I'm not going to explain blackness. Blackness just is on Speakeasy with Deneen. You mentioned your daughters earlier. We meet them. Mari is uh, 20, studying at Yale. Lila, is it Lila or Lila? Yes, Lila. Lila is 17 in Atlanta <laughs> Public Schools. You said that you've been feeding them blackness. Yes. Uh, from the womb, and they both give their thoughts on what it's like to embrace their own identities. So how have they influenced your perspective as as young women who are growing up now? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. So... It's so funny because you'll you'll hear me just sort of do a what are you talking about, kid? Um, in one of the episodes where they're actually it's the the black episode, um, and they're talking about how they came into their blackness, and they're questioning, you know, like my you know pouring blackness into them, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? What? I- 
used to rock you to sleep in my womb to like Stevie Wonder. What are you talking about? I surrounded you with black books and black pictures. And when I couldn't find black po- posters with black children and I had them made up, what are you talking about? When I couldn't find the books, I wrote them. Absolutely. When I couldn't find the books, I wrote them. Yeah. So what are you talking about? And and it led to a really interesting conversation about how they came into their own blackness in their own way that was really revelatory to me as their mom. It blew me away. Like, wow, I thought I did it. And they're like, no, not really. Mm-mm. No, this is this is this is how it manifested. Broke my heart. (laughs) Well, I'm so happy for for all that gets revealed in the podcast. Deneen Milner, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Deneen Milner is a best-selling author. She's co-host of GPB's A Seat at the Table and now host of Speakeasy with Deneen. The podcast drops tomorrow on GPB and all the podcast pl- platforms, iTunes included, NPR. Since Deneen invites a number of musicians into our Speakeasy, we asked her for the soundtrack to her life, and she chose Stevie Wonder's As. Beautiful choice. We're going to leave you with that song. And as Deneen says, Until the next Speakeasy, be easy. <laughs> Right. (laughs) This is On Second Thought from GPB. As long as the sun keeps shining.